If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. From political agitators to composers, artist muses and the goddaughter of the Queen herself, black people led a variety of fascinating lives in Victorian Britain. In Black Victorians Hidden in History, Drs John Wolfe and Keisha N. Abraham chart some of these lives, both ordinary and extraordinary. And John joined me to share some of the stories that they uncovered. So thanks so much for coming back on the podcast, John. We thought it'd be good to have you back on because you've just co-authored a new book with Dr. Keisha Abraham, who sadly can't join us today. But that new book is Black Victorians Hidden in History. So let's start with some basic context. What were some of the ways that people of African descent shaped Britain in the Victorian era? Well, so one of the things we wanted to to show in our book, I I suppose the sort of central point was that black history and British history aren't two separate domains. You know, they're absolutely intimately interconnected. And so before you even get to the Victorian era, you've got around... 10 to 20,000 um, black people living and working in Britain. And in our book, what we do is we, we look across the social spectrum, honing in on certain individuals to illuminate the way in which they weren't just present in the Victorian era, um, they were pivotal, they helped build Great Britain. So whether that's individuals more on the social margins, fighting for working class rights, whether that's black Victorians in the sphere of uh, the church and missionary drives, whether that's black Victorians um, 
in the higher echelons of Victorian society, you know, associated with Queen Victoria, or indeed in political circles, you find throughout the 19th century, a black British presence um, that did much to make the world uh, that we uh, enjoy today. So we really wanted to show that kind of full gambit of, of contribution to Victorian life. As you say, you pick out key fascinating lives. And I do want to talk to you about some of those incredible people. Mm. But before we do, in order to understand many of these people's experiences in Britain in the 19th century, we really need to understand a bit about race theory at the time, don't we? What can you tell us about the shifting nature of ideas about race in the 19th century? So race has an exceptionally long history that goes back to to the Middle Ages and before. And in the 19th century, the very term race was quite a vague term. It meant different things to different people. But there were sort of broad kind of understandings or scientific uh, movements, if you like, that sought to understand the relationships between different people across the globe. And so uh, historians often talk about, on the one hand, operative in the 19th century was this theory known as monogenism, which essentially said that all humans uh, were the product of a single act of divine creation and differences in skin colour and temperament were essentially caused by, by the environment. So we're all part of one family. And that theory really had kind of institutional expression in the ethnographic um, Society of London, which formed in 1843. And its president talked a lot uh, about us being kind of of one tribe, of one family. Um, on the other hand, you had an emerging theory, again, with, with longer roots, known as polygenism, which essentially argued that human species, uh, white and black in particular, were biologically inherently different. Um, and on the basis of these exclusive biological categories of difference, you had inferiority uh, applied to uh, black population um, and you had different mental uh, and moral characteristics imputed uh, onto um, uh, white people, Asians and, and, and black people. And that in a way started to give a kind of scientific gloss to this idea of uh, a racial hierarchy. Um, but that was very much within the sort of scientific sphere, if you like. That that type of thinking didn't necessarily permeate um, everyday uh, thinking. And I think for your average uh, man and, and woman in the streets, they wouldn't have been having monogenism or polygenism in their minds. And you know, polygenism had its own sort of institutional framework in the Anthropological Society of London. But that wasn't really available for your everyday uh, commoner. Instead, ideas of race trickled down through popular culture. Um, and so you had the rise in the 19th century of ethnographic exhibitions, sometimes referred to as human zoos, which brought people from across the globe, displayed them as essentially freaks of nature um, and, and pitted um, those from Africa in particular as, as somehow inferior, backward, uh, uncivilised. And these forms of entertainment really started in the 19th century as small-scale, transitory, uncommercialised uh, forms of entertainment to become really big, commercialised, popular forms by the end of the 19th century. And then, of course, you had blackface minstrelsy as well, which peddled the idea of uh, African-Americans in particular as lazy, comical uh, and stupid. And that Again, like the ethnographic exhibitions, minstrelsy really went from kind of small back 
backroom entertainment to become a massively commercialized popular form of entertainment by the end of the 19th century. And that again peddled this idea uh, of, of racial inferiority. And that's even before we get onto events across the globe and the rise of empire. So race, in short, was very much um, a hot topic uh, in the 19th century and some something that's often, uh, I don't think, fully appreciated in, in some of our history books. Well, you raise a good point there that we can't really talk about race in the 19th century or in 19th century Britain without acknowledging empire and the role of imperialism in shaping these ideas. Well, I mean, look, by, you get, by the time you get to 1914... Uh, 90% of Africa was under European uh, control. Um, and what you see as, particularly as we get to the 1870s and beyond, um, sometimes referred to as the scramble for Africa or the rape of Africa, um, is the rise of this you know, hard-nosed imperialism that uh, subjugated people uh, across the globe. And that really gave sort of greater credence to the idea of Britain um, as some sort of nation destined to control others, imbued that sense of uh, superiority. It led to the rise of a jingoistic fervour um, in, in Britain. Um, and that itself kind of contributed to this idea of, um, you know, Britain's right to rule, uh, Britain's uh, natural um, uh, right to rule. Uh, and that was supported by broader changes uh, in a kind of theoretical framework, uh, particularly around like the survival of the fittest. The empire had a big sway on perceptions of countries across the globe and, and, and the people who were citizens of those countries, often becoming citizens of the, the United Kingdom as a result. So let's talk now about some of the extraordinary figures that you do look at in your book. And as you say, they come from all levels of society, really. So why not let's start right at the top, the upper echelons of Victorian society, because there were some immensely rich black figures in Victorian society. What can you tell us about some of those people in that stratified world and how they were received by Britain's aristocracy? The caveat of all of this is while our book focuses on individuals, what we really try and do is avoid this trap of black exceptionalism, that there was just like one or two individuals who kind of succeeded when all others failed. And, and really what Keisha and I uh, seek to do is situate those individual stories within broader contexts and milieus. When we discuss certain individuals, I think it's worth, worth bearing that in mind. Um, but in terms of some of those individuals, you've got the likes of uh, Nathaniel Wells, uh, for example, who was a rich black country gentleman who owned a big estate on the Welsh borders. He was renowned and respected uh, within his local community. He had a large family. And it was funny, we went through um, the, the local newspapers at the time, um, and he was a sheriff of his local area. He was a church warden. He was an investor in um, uh, the railways. Uh, and he was really very much a, a respected member uh, of the upper echelons. Um, so Nathaniel Wells was a, a really interesting case. You've got others who were sort of within the orbit of Queen Victoria, for example, someone like Sarah Forbes Bonetta, um, who I should say historian Caroline Bressy has done a lot of work um, looking at Sarah Forbes Bonetta. And indeed, if I may add another caveat, Keisha and I very much and happily labour in the shadows uh, of many great historians before us in terms of looking at the Black British presence. But Sarah Forbes Bonetta, she was 
cut, cut a long story short, presented to Queen Victoria in 1850 on the birthday, actually, of uh, the Prince of Wales, Bertie. Um, and she had come from the Kingdom of Dahomey, which is present-day Benin. Um, she had uh, been orphaned at, at an early age, and she was essentially given uh, to a British naval captain um, as a gift by the king for Queen Victoria. So Sarah Forbes Bonetta comes over to the UK, uh, meets Queen Victoria, uh, and Queen Victoria and others decide that Sarah Forbes Bonetta should enter missionary circles. So she's trained up as a missionary um, first in Sierra Leone, she then comes back to the UK, um, and she marries in 1862 a man of the sort of West African elite who were very operative in in 19th century Britain. Um, and she was a a favourite of Queen Victoria. She was often around Buckingham Palace. Um, her daughter, Victoria Davies, went to Cheltenham's Ladies College, paid for a you know, very prestigious uh, British educational institution. Uh, her fees were paid for by the palace. She was actually the goddaughter to Queen Victoria. And Victoria Davies' daughter, uh, Sarah Davies, um, was the, the goddaughter to Queen Victoria's youngest daughter. So you had this sort of like familial connection um, uh, between uh, the Queen and and Sarah Forbes uh, Bonetta's uh, family. So these were just some of the uh, some of the examples. I mean, Prince Alamehu uh, was another came over orphaned from uh, Ethiopia following uh, brutal uh, British uh, invasion of Ethiopia, Abyssinia back then, and um, he went to uh, rugby school. He went to Sandhurst. Um, and unfortunately, he died. He died very young. But you know, within the, the corridors of Buckingham Palace um, and within the broader social structures, you had uh, wealthy Black Victorians. Like you say, people like Sarah Forbes Bonetta are probably some of the most well known today. And your point about avoiding exceptionalism is an important one because lots of people didn't go on to become the goddaughter of Queen Victoria. They led much more mundane and and difficult lives. So let's jump now to the opposite extreme of Victorian society. What could you tell us about black lives that you've managed to uncover at the real bottom of the social scale, those who found themselves on the margins of society? Yeah, so one of the things that Keisha and I uh, were really keen to do was go to those archives um, from the social margins and uh, try and resurrect human stories. And, and, and let me tell you, it's, it's not an easy thing to do because, I mean, for, for example, since the census records didn't record ethnicity until 1991. Um, and you know, we went through all sorts of institutional uh, records uh, both in terms of m mental asylums and the censuses, and skin colour is rarely mentioned, so it requires quite a lot of um, searching. And you know, again, we were very uh, lucky that a number of historians had done some important work uh, in this regard. But some of the individuals that we found on the social margins, um, they come from Henry Mayhew, um, you know, a big social investigator of the 1840s, and he recorded. Uh, a number of um, black Victorians living on the social margins, one being uh, Edward Albert. He was born in Jamaica. He entered the, the Royal Navy um, as a cabin boy, and he worked his way up to, to head cook in the British Navy. Um, and in 1851, on a journey, he suffers frostbite to his legs. Um, and in a very harrowing story, the shipmates decide that the best way to, to cure this frostbite is to put Edward Albert's legs uh, in an oven. Um, and his legs burst and he loses both of his legs and he's abandoned um, in, in South America. 
and he manages to make his way back back to Britain um, penniless. Um, and he talks about uh, to Henry Mayhew uh, his determination to secure his rights, the money that he was owed from that ship, which never paid him. Um, and he spends a, a lot of his days uh, going to the British consulate, going to the, the, the mayor uh, to try and get what he refers to as his rights. And uh, he lives this sort of transitory life between London and Glasgow. He opens a pastry shop in Glasgow. Unfortunately, uh, as he says, he was sort of robbed uh, by an unscrupulous businessman and, and that never materialised. And Henry Mayhew sees him first meets him when he's begging on the streets of London. Um, now, what's really interesting about Ad- Edward Albert is although Henry Mayhew kind of classes him as uh, a black crossing sweeper uh, who lost both of his legs, Edward Albert was someone who um, uh, wrote his own um, memoir, uh, and that memoir has been found, and he outlines his life, which was, you know, much more uh, full and complex and hard to categorise than, than 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 Mayhew sought to do. Um, and yeah, we don't really know what happened to him, but he was an example of a Black Victorian living on uh, on the social margins who was trying to feed a family, he had a wife and a child. Other cases, we went to archives in um, mental asylums, so Broadmoor uh, and Bethlehem Royal Archives. And there was, uh, you know, there's a number of really sort of harrowing stories that that we came across. Uh, but one in particular was uh, a gentleman known as William Brown, who was born in British Guyana uh, in 1832. Mm-hmm. Uh, like many um, uh, Black Victorians at the time, he joined the Navy in his mid-20s and he rose to the rank of petty officer. Um, and he actually received a medal for good conduct during his service. Um He then leaves the Navy, retires on a naval pension. He marries in 1871, um, but his mental health starts to take a turn for for the worst. And in a very kind of dark and and traumatic episode, which we we picked up in the local press, he actually uh, kills his wife um, and stabs his stepson and sets fires to his house and then tries to to kill himself. Uh, And ultimately, he's taken uh, to Broadmoor. Um, you know, institution for the criminally insane. In us telling this story, we, we wanted to tell history in full. We didn't want to sort of uh, censor any of these stories. Um, often when you go to these institutional records, they're very cold um, and it's the bare facts are there. But we found letters from his daughter. Uh, he had two daughters and a son who'd been taken to the workhouse following uh, the death of their mother, the murder of their mother. Um, and the daughter writes to her father, who's in Broadmoor, these incredibly moving and loving letters um, about how she, you know, dear daddy, I hope this finds you well in informing him of what's what's happening to the family. Um, and that was like a real moment of sort of familial uh, love and compassion in the midst of this darkness. And like, I mean, I could go on and on. We, John Flynn was someone else we discovered, spent 47 years of his life incarcerated in four different Victorian institutions, um, labelled uh, an imbecile, labelled insane, um, uh, and yet going through his records, jumping from his time in prison to his time in a, a county asylum to his time in Bethlehem Royal Hospital to his time in Broadmoor, we find reference to, um, and this always moves me, it was claimed he couldn't speak, it was claimed he wasn't educated. Yeah, there's a really interesting line in one of the medical reports that reports him saying that he was a native of the, of the uh, West Indies. Uh, he was a native of the West Indies, which was a tiny slither of his voice. Um, this this black Victorian 
um, incarcerated during the age of confinement um, who lives on uh, in the archives. And uh, yeah, was, these are some of the stories we, we try to, to capture and, and retell to the best of our ability. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. As a historian of the 19th century, I can't but study race. The two are inseparable. To understand the 19th century, you've got to understand um, issues of race and the black contribution. So to not write it as a collaborative piece felt equally like an abdication of responsibility. This is our history. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed use indeed for scheduling screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster and listeners of this show will get a 75 dollars sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash history extra just go to indeed.com slash history extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit Hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. These stories are really interesting, aren't they? Because I think there has been a tradition in black history for good reason of highlighting, as you say, exceptional stories, people who triumphed against adversity and they overcame the odds to achieve great things. But many of these people never had that opportunity or or were capable of that. Was that something that you were keen to convey? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Keisha was, uh, you know, she's sorry she can't be here t- tonight. I mean, she was saying uh, very much that you know, we, as historians, we don't want to cast shadows over the past. And we, we approached our subject matter with a sort of liberating lens, seeking to imbue uh, agency and hope and finding those moments of freedom in those stories. Um, and that was a challenge when you're on, you know, you're looking at stories on the social margins. Um, and, you know, bearing in mind, this is a period, this is not true of just black Victorians, this is true of, of Victorians in general. Like the majority of the population lived on the social margins, were working classes. Um, and it's absolutely essential for us to do proper history was to look at uh, all of these stories, um, those stories that we could find and present a, a full picture. So we were very cognizant of that. Um, but, you know, we we didn't want to sort of self-censor in that way. That felt like you'd be doing history and injustice. But just to return to some people who perhaps did have slightly more unusual lives for a moment, several of the figures that you look at had a significant impact on culture and the arts. I wondered if there were any of those that you wanted to highlight. Yeah, I mean, there, again, so so many potential uh, incredible uh, Black Victorians who, who helped shape the cultural landscape. I mean, you've got individuals like uh, Fanny Eaton, who was born in Jamaica in 1835, comes over uh, to, to, to Britain with her mother, settles down, and we find her in the census of 1851 uh, with her mother, and she's a 16-year-old uh, domestic servant. Um Around sort of 1859, and, and Fanny Eaton's family uh, have done a lot of research into into her life. Uh, around 1859, she meets uh, Simeon Solomon, who is an up and coming uh, 
uh, artist associated with the Pre-Raphaelite uh, Brotherhood. Now, Simeon Solomon uh, does a series of sketches uh, of Fanny Eaton um, in, in November 1851. And really, that's the start of her kind of entry into um, the uh, the echelons of the, the pre pre-Raphaelite uh, circles and she's painted and sketched by a number of artists and as other historians have, have said she becomes almost like a pre-Raphaelite muse um, and she's within the Royal Academy um, she's got a huge family to support she, she had around nine children um, and she's earning a living um, by being an artist's model and you know whether it's Rossetti's painting of the bride we see uh, Fanny Eaton there Simeon Solomon's the mother of Moses she's portrayed as the uh, the prophet of Moses um, she appears in a number of these uh, pieces of art so her story was really interesting because it we really wanted to show uh, examples of, of uh, female black Victorians she was a prime example of a uh, female black Victorian uh, who entered um, the kind of cultural, uh, artistic circles of the time but then you've got you've got others the likes of uh, Ira Aldridge uh, a renowned Shakespearean actor of the 19th century often hounded out of of London uh, by a racist press but he performed uh, Othello Hamlet abolitionist melodramas uh, comedy um, as a African-American uh, black Shakespearean actor and by the end of his very long career where he'd won awards and medals throughout Europe um, he was praised in the British press for his acting abilities. Well Ira Aldridge is a nice link because he wasn't the only um, African-American who came to Britain and had a big impact. Um, many black American abolitionists also came to Britain in this period, shared their stories um, and campaigned for the end of slavery in America. They had some extraordinary exploits that they recounted. What can you tell us about them? Yeah, it's a really good point. I mean, we, you know, this was very much an international period and really from... I mean, it's got a very long history, but from the 1830s in particular and, and reaching a heydays in the middle of the century. So you had a number of African-Americans uh, formerly uh, enslaved uh, or escaping uh, slavery coming to Britain and championing the abolitionist movement. Because bearing in mind, America still had uh, slavery at this time. Um, and Frederick Douglass uh, in the 1840s was a prime example of someone who managed to rile um, the uh, the British uh, who flocked to these uh, talks from from black abolitionists uh, into denouncing American uh, slavery and um, championing uh, what they perceived to be a sort of uh, enlightened British nation that had uh, abolished slavery, although that story is more complex. But others who came to Britain included the likes of Henry uh, Box Brown, who had escaped slavery um, uh, from Virginia to Philadelphia in in a box three feet long and two feet wide and he traveled 350 miles in this box secretly until he uh, found his freedom uh, in the north uh, of America and he comes to Britain and regales his stories uh, of escape, regales the the horrors and the, the torment of life in slavery um, and he, he actually sort of reenacts his his escape um, in in the UK to drum up support for for his talks. Um, so Henry Box Brown's story really sort of permeated uh, uh, British consciousness. And then you had others like uh, the Crufts, um, William and Ellen Cruft, um, and Ellen Cruft uh, born enslaved, William Cruft born enslaved, and they had this 
you know, really quite incredible escape where Ellen managed to pass as a um, slave owner, disabled and a man, um, and escape from the South to the North. And and her story and that of her, her husband became, you know, a massive topic of conversation in the UK. Yeah, their story is an incredible one. So I would encourage anybody listening to go and look up more about that. Um, It's worth saying as well, isn't it, that black activists weren't only campaigning for abolition. I'm thinking here of the the chartist William Cuffey. Yeah, so William Cuffey is another example of um, a uh, British-born black Victorian um, who had trained uh, as an apprentice, as, as a tailor, um, and he did a seven-year apprentice uh, as a tailor. Um, and at the time, and this is in the early 19th century, um, there were a number of different uh, pressures on the life uh, of tailors, whether that's low pay, uh, the increased mechanisation uh, of labour, and poor conditions for tailors. And this led to a large tailors' strike in 1834. And William Cuffey uh, gets involved uh, in this tailors' strike um, and in a way that sort of gives birth to, to his working class consciousness, if you like. And he becomes very involved in the Chartist movement, uh, the move, working class movement for the, the suffrage, male suffrage. Um, and he's not just sort of like a marginal figure within this fight for male suffrage. He's a central uh, leader uh, within the movement. Um, and in 1848, he's actually arrested for trying to levy war against the Queen. He's associated with the sort of militant um, side of the Chartist movement. Uh, and he ends up in the Old Bailey, um, defending his cause, defending his actions, and is ultimately found guilty uh, and is sentenced to transportation for life. And he settles in Tasmania. Um, but he was massively vilified in, in the press Um, He was mocked in the press. But this was a working class black Victorian who was fighting for working class rights. uh, And he wasn't the only one. And there were many more before him as well. Um, So we we found in uh, uh, the 19th century, you know, black radical activism um, embedded in in, uh, the the working class movements. And historian Ron Ramden uh, wrote a fantastic book on this, The Making of, of the Black Working Class, um, which explores, uh, you know, the, the black um, contribution and interdependency with the broader working class struggle. Of course, you've authored this book with um, Keisha Abraham. But in the intro to the book, you do discuss the fact that you are, of course, a white man writing black history. And you quote historian Peter Fryer's question, can such an account be written by a white author in a way that's acceptable to black readers? What's your take on that question? I, I think it's a really important an important question. You know, this is very much a co-authored book and Keisha Abraham uh, is a, a black feminist um, scholar and historian. So we very much approach this um, as a team. And I think it in a way, it goes back to the central premise uh, of the book and the central argument of the book is that black history and British history aren't two separate domains. Um, and so my expertise on, on this was as a cultural uh, British historian that had studied Britain uh, in in the 19th century for, for many, many years. And as a historian of the 19th century, I can't but study race. The two are inseparable. To understand the 19th century, you've got to understand um, issues of race and the black contribution. So to not write it as a collaborative piece felt 
equally like an abdication of responsibility. This is our history. This is we we should all be uh, aware of these these stories. And and frankly, I've been you know writing about my previous book. Uh, looked at this as well. So, but I do think as a white historian, you have to be uh, exceptionally um, careful. We're all subjective creatures informed by our times. This had to be a piece of collaborative history because, you know, I've got, I've got many blind spots and, you know, we approached this to illuminate the issue of race in the 19th century. That was the essential point of it. And that the primary purpose was, was to tell history. It wasn't to make a political point um, it was to tell history as it, as it was. You and Keisha write about our focus on firsts. So you use the, the example of Britain's, quote, first black police officer as an example of how misleading that focus can be, because it's really hard to establish who was Britain's first black police officer. So how do you think we should reframe our focus when we're talking about black British history? Well, I think for us, you know, that example that, that we used, it, it kind of illuminated uh, two things. One is the, you know, the the, the difficulties in, in terms of, of the archives. There's so much still that we don't know. Um, and, you know, there, there's lots within the archives that sort of obscure uh, someone's uh, ethnicities, uh, as we've briefly talked about. So to make these claims of firsts, I, I, I understand, particularly uh, as a historian, that the the kind of desire or the tendency uh, to, to want to do that. But in the example of, uh, you know, the so-called first black police officer, we had that with Norwell Roberts in 1967, until it was discovered that actually Robert Branford joined the Metropolitan Police in 1838. Until then, you discover that John Kent was a British-born constable appointed in 1835. Until you then return to the archives and see that in 1746, uh, there was another black constable. So, you know, there's so much we don't know that I think we always have to be be careful in making these, these broad claims. I think the second point, and it goes back to this idea um, of, of black exceptionalism, is if you sort of highlight the first in such a way, you run the risk of giving the uh, impression that there was a solitary black individual who somehow succeeded when others failed, somehow smashed the glass ceiling. Um, and in that, you ignore the networks, the contacts, the milieus, the other black Victorians who are operating. You also obscure the role of um, white dominance, um, uh, within that. And I think thirdly, it, it gives this, you know, we constantly have this idea that the black British presence began with the Windrush generation, um, which is, you know, clearly false. Um, and so, you know, I think there's a number of reasons as to why we, we need to be careful with, with that label of first, essentially because it promotes that idea uh, of, of black exceptionalism and also because the you know, there's still so much more to discover in the archives. That was Dr. John Wolfe. His book, which is co-authored with Keisha N. Abraham, is Black Victorians Hidden in History, which is on sale now, published by Duckworth. John also wrote a feature on this subject for the Christmas issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. 